Hello and welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast. For the next 30 minutes, we'll be talking about organic growing, giving you tips and advice. I'm Sarah Brown, Garden Organic's Growing Advice Editor, and I'm joined by Chris Collins, our Head of Horticulture. This month, we're celebrating spring. It's April, the buds are bursting, the birds are singing, and gardeners everywhere are getting excited. We'll be talking about seed sowing and when to plant your seedlings out. We also discuss that special plant, Comfrey, the organic gardener's secret fertiliser. And we look in detail at organic slug pellets, should you be using them. Finally, Chris gets to meet an organic gardener who works with substance abusers in prison. His work is a powerful testament to the therapeutic effects of growing and gardening. So, let's get started. Okay, so I'm now with Chris out in the potting shed and spring has truly sprung. Doesn't it make you feel different? You know, I can almost... uh... It's like a sense, like a sixth sense, I think, being a gardener. Because when every time the season changes, there's like this huge familiarity to it. And spring especially, because it's kind of renewal and regeneration, it really kind of lifts you up. And I was out on the balcony yesterday. I love my little balcony. It's amazing what you could do in a small space. But just the sound of the bird song. It was like they're... I know they're all being very amorous. I know they're all kind of singing to each other. But also the greatest spot of woodpecker visit me on my feeder, the, all the buds, I love that bud swell as the buds start to move, you know, the sap's rising in the trees. And you feel your own sap rising as a You gardener. do, exactly, the two things are totally connected, you really do, and I think as a gardener you, you're closer to it than, than, you know, I encourage everyone to garden because you sense it that much better, you really do, you really feel it a part of you. Oh, it's powerful, it's not for nothing that poets didn't write about spring because it really gets you going. So, now we're in April, Chris, what are, what are the top things you want to be doing? Well, for me, obviously, it's my favourite time for one big reason it's seed sowing time and I just love uh, creating seedlings and young plants and moving the season forward all the work we do now with our seed sowing and our husbandry will lead to our rewards later in the season this is the busy period now let's be practical are you sowing outside I'm not because it's still cold the soil is still cold where I am so it's too early for me to sow outside I'm just sowing in the greenhouse well it's interesting you say that because I was on my allotment site I've been on it a couple of days this week getting ready working away and I noticed that all the old boys haven't started sowing yet and I tend to take my lead from them because they've been on the site a long time I have done a little bit of sowing, but I fleeced. The, I've put, I put a little bit of salad leaf in, a bit of lettuce, but I fleeced it. So you I'm mean hoping, you put a fleece down yes, to keep it yeah. warm? So like a blanket, it's almost like a duvet. So a little bit of, um, I thought that'll probably get them going because those plants are quite tough. Spinach as well, I think I've put in. But I am on the whole holding back. I am going to start next week, I think, with my propagators. So I'll put my runner beans in, my tommies, these more tender plants. I have been guilty in the past of going a bit early with the tenders. Going early March, and I've got then quite leggy plants when I go out because obviously I'm in a flat that can elongate a bit, stretch a bit, I mean. Um, so I'm going to hang back, but you, it's definitely um, the first two weeks of April, I really want to get motoring with it. Yeah, and of course you're down south in London, and anyone who lives further north is still waiting for winter right. to end. <laughs> Listen, I was speaking to my mate Scott, because obviously I've still got a lot of connections to Scotland, it was snowing there last week. <laughs> so I said, no runner beans for you then, fella. <laughs> Also, I know one thing that I'm going to be doing is keeping on top of weeds. Yeah. Because they're already beginning to emerge, aren't they? I have an expression, and I use it with the kids when I'm in schools. I call it weed before they seed. Like, um, that just basically means, obviously, you want to get them out. Like, say, chickweed, for example. That will set seed, grow, flower and seed in three weeks flat. So if you're not on top of that, you're just going to have a busier summer because there'll be more of it. Um, I don't 
dismiss weeds completely. I like to have what I call a weed corridor down the side of the allotment. I love the dandelions and stuff. It's good for nature, pollinators. I was taught by a woman called Kate Bradley, you might have heard of. She's an author, wildlife author. And she said, I said to her, I had this small patch at the bottom of the allotment for wildlife. She said, a waste of time because they all just stay on the patch. She said, you need to run it almost like a corridor down the side. So I allow weeds in there. That's my little wildlife area. Let, let nature do what it is. But the rest of the time, weed before they seed, because I want to keep on top of it, and I don't want those weeds competing with my baby spinach, my baby leaves, etc. And I like the idea that it's weed management rather than weed elimination. You know, if you can tolerate those weeds, they, they provide so much for the insects, which we know from the news are disappearing rapidly. Those insects need those weeds because of the pollen and, and the habitat that they provide for them. I think the days of us kind of like having this nuclear option with all other things we don't want around is are well and truly over, aren't they? And, so. and as organic gardeners, you know, that we, we one of the things we do is we know we need to make sacrifices to all the other things that want to be a part of the areas we're gardening in. And I think when we, over time, we get that right, that's far more rewarding. Yeah. So stinging nettles, loved by butterflies. I actually made a stinging nettle soup yesterday you do flan as well you can my 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 good lady would make a cheese and a nettle flan sometimes which is quite nice you've got to get them when they're young isn't it sarah yeah, you know, when, they're... when they're young just yeah. the tips don't get them any later than that they frankly taste a bit like they came out of right <laughs> but when they're young get the tips and they're full of iron they're full of nutrients. very healthy it's much better for you than spinach yeah and like you say they support uh caterpillars and, and and wildlife also if they're getting a bit out of boisterous you can also make a nitrogen feed out of them can't yeah you? and ladybirds love them and yeah. i'm going to tell you a lovely little fact about ladybirds that a ladybird can eat 50 aphids in a day so grow your nettles that'll encourage the ladybirds to nest and have their offspring and then they will keep your aphids under control. well there you go a bit of biological control a bit of natural balance that's what we're after wildlife warriors i call them <laughs> and then chris i know that something you were brought up last time is watering well this is an essential time for watering i think most people tend to see watering as the easiest job going i would argue sarah it's the most difficult because when you water, you, do, you should be checking all the other gardening jobs you should be doing. Does it need picking over? Has it got competition around it? Is it looking a bit chloritic? Does it need feeding, basically? And I think also that um, you have to check every day. You need to check the, the moisture content in the soil, especially around seedlings. It's not something you can skip over. You can't go along, throw two buckets of water down, I'll be back in a week. You can't do that. It's an essential part, especially this time of year in April, that you're bonding with your plants, and you're bonding with your plants through the act of watering. That's nicely put. And April can quite a dry month we've noticed in the past few years that April can be hot and dry so you don't want your seedlings to dry out I think daily checks is essential and it like I say you, you get skin in the game then because your plants start to grow and you want you, you're less inclined to want them to fail you bond with it this is what being a gardener is all about but I think it's definitely the, the keystone of what we do is in irrigation and I think people take it a bit lightly and actually it's, it's quite a serious job. Yes, I like your idea that it's also an opportunity to observe. Yes. To look at the plants and see what they are. We're going to come later in the post bag. I know someone's written in asking, when do I plant out my seedlings? When are they ready? So we won't touch on that now. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. There's one final thing that I know you're going to be talking about, Chris, because we always do. Slugs. Yes, good old slugs. You're never far from a slug, are you? No, never far from slugs. <laughs> and they're coming out because they love this time of year as well. The thing I want to talk about are slug pellets. Yes. Now, we know as organic gardeners that the slug pellets that contain metaldehyde, that is the poison that's used to kill slugs, is a really a no-no because that can that is a poison. 
and who knows what happens to the birds that eat the slugs mm. that have eaten the metaldehyde and so on. Pets can eat them, children eat them. Yeah. There are organic slug pellets and they are certified for use in organic growing and they don't contain metaldehyde, they contain ferric phosphate, which breaks down naturally into the soil. All well and good, however, there are other elements within those pellets, they're called chelators, and they help carry the minerals in the slug pellet. Those chelators are as dangerous to the soil life as the metaldehyde in some ways. They so it is to the poison in all rights then? It, it is, and, and research has been done to show that these chemicals will actually kill or at worst disable the earthworms. Slug pellets are a really tricky area for the organic grower. Then. Yeah you're still threatening your soil life. So what I would suggest is, one, can you do without them? If you can't, and I completely understand because there's nothing more soul-destroying than seeing your row of seedlings being munched, use them very sparingly. Really, really, three or four round a plant, that's all that's needed. So a little amount, because I always understand, and I see it actually on my allotment site in places, people don't know about measurements when it comes to pellets to start, even the, the, the poisonous ones, the highly poisonous ones. When you need three or four, they'll put down 300. Yes. And so it's a little bit, we need to they be... They sprinkle them like salt. Yeah, they do. And so it's a bit about measurement, isn't it? Making sure you're very cautious about what you're applying to the soil and thinking about that. And I think as organic growers, we are normally by nature much more ca more cautious. And I think it's right that we are. So don't, I'm not necessarily saying no to the organic slug pellets. I'm just saying be mindful of what you're I using. I think that makes perfect sense. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Sarah. This month is John Noble, whose quiet demeanour belies his committed and effective work in a prison. John works with the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Team at HMP Rye Hill, who, with Garden Organic, helps inmates deal with their substance abuse by working in a garden. He explains how being out of doors, learning how to plant and grow and working with nature, helps inmates deal with their problems. We were also interested in whether organic gardening made a particular difference. But first, he describes to Chris how his day starts. So, John, I think you do a job a great many people couldn't do. And I also a lot of people would have no concept of it either. Can you describe to me your day as you go into work, how, what the surroundings are like and how you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, I work in a Category B prison. So, it's, you know, high secure. Um, so my day starts by going through the gatehouse, which is usually a random search, searching for all manner of things, you know, weapons, drugs, things you shouldn't have on you. Um, we are searched by dogs, you know, searched by staff. We then can get keys because there is literally a gate every 20 yards within a prison. Um, get a radio so we're nice and safe. But yeah, the day starts from there, really. And what about the size of it? Is it crowded? Is it intense? Or is it like a... I always think prisons are quite... As I've worked a little one myself, quite small, quite village-like. Yeah, absolutely. Village is a really good way of describing it. It's sort of, yeah, a village surrounded by a 30-foot wall <laughs> um, and several very large fences. Certainly on the, the residential units where it's just chaotic and really crowded and there's lots going on. And then if you look at places like the garden where we are, it's kind of this quiet little area tucked away. And then you kind of sometimes... You know, when you're working in there, you forget you're in a prison and then you look up and then you're sort of met by this massive concrete wall and you remember exactly where you are. And what do you, when they come to you, obviously the people in there with quite intense problems. Um, I don't want to go into the individual 
problems that each have. But when they come to you as people, how do you find them? What, what, what issues do they have? I'm sure it's fairly complex. Absolutely, yeah. So our specific project works within a drug and alcohol team. So everyone that comes to us has a drug or alcohol issue, which they're working through. So they have that. And then obviously you think about sort of the environment they're in, the, the sort of the guilt, I guess, of, of sort of having to live with the crimes they've committed. There's a lot of mental health or poor mental health. So a lot of this stuff's all sort of wrapped up in one. So when the guys come to us, usually there's, there's a lot of underlying issues that have to sort of be resolved. Um, and that can be, you know, everything from just addictions and fundamentally they're doing quite well. Or there's some guys that come to us who are prolific self-harmers. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, of drug use within the prisons just to try and cope, I guess. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite as, about as complex as it gets. Really. It's very, they have profound problems, don't they? And, and so I'm interested, speaking to someone who came into Garden at 17 who did come off the back of a drugs issue, actually, myself, I kind of know how um, Garden helped resolve that for me. So when they come in and they've obviously got these profound problems, what role do they play in the garden? How much do you encourage them to, to be a part of that garden and develop that garden? Well, fundamentally, from, from the very offset of the project, one of the main things that we said was that we were going to give ownership of the garden over to the lads that were working on it. Because, you know, in, in a prison environment, they are told what they have to do from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. And the idea was always that it was their space to create. So, you know, the designing, the building, the maintaining is all down to the lads. Everything that, that people can see in the garden is what they've created. And sort of from what I see as well, you know, you give ownership over to them and that's when they really engage because it's theirs. So when we work with the lads on the project, we don't work above them and tell them what to do. We, we work alongside them. You know, we, we will follow through the ideas they have, obviously within reason because mm-hmm. it's a prison. Um, but yeah, most things you see in the garden, has, an idea has come from a prisoner. So, so empowerment's really important part of what you do? I think it's the most important right. thing that we do. You know, we give them ownership of it and it gives them a space that they're proud of. And if they're proud of it, they'll respect it. And if they respect it, they engage. And if they engage with us in the garden, they engage with the rest of the drug team. And that's when rehabilitation really starts. Right, so, so it polices itself almost down that line, doesn't it? In the, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean... Perfect case in point is, you know, we don't have operational members of staff, so we don't have prison officers working in the garden. And that was a conscious decision right at the very beginning. And in the six and a, six years and a few months that the project's been working, we've never had a, a major incident. Whereas in the rest of the prison population, yeah. they're, they're happening on a daily basis because the guys know what they've got down there and how, brilliant. how brilliant it is to be down there. That they, they, they just don't step over the line. Okay, John, when you get a prisoner coming to you, I take it they sign up with you and they come along and they've obviously got quite a few issues. Have you got examples of how individuals have progressed and how it's affected them doing the gardening? Yeah, absolutely. It's so many. Um, fundamentally, we're a drug and alcohol recovery garden, so that's our main focus and that's where our funding comes from. Um, but obviously, you can't sort of separate that out from mental health and, and that's always pilling apart. You know, So, you know, there's a lad that we've taken on probably five weeks ago came down he's he's detoxing from methadone he's on a reduction you know he came down he was not in a great place as I'm sure you can imagine and just to see him now he's completely transformed a bare patch of earth in his own little garden you know he's put a pond in to attract the dragonflies that have gone in the garden you know he's 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 got a veg plot he's got flower plot he's on his last stages of reduction on his methadone and he's in a really good place and he absolutely says that that's down to the fact he's been able to come down into the garden. You know, we've had lads that 
were within the prison prolific self-harmers. You know, they, they were in and out of hospital, but really, really serious sort of injuries they were doing to themselves. And then they come into the garden and sort of that self-harm just stops overnight. Wow. And they again say that that's down to, to the garden. So I suppose in a little way, they kind of, they're in a kind of instant world, in a way, especially with the drug takers. I mean, it's all about the now, isn't it? You kind of want, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get high now, and you kind of want something instantly. Whereas obviously the horticulture, there's longevity to it, isn't it? It takes time to build it up. So you said, do you see a change over, like you said, you mentioned the lad for five weeks. You've seen that, that change happen over that time as he's gradually got more and more into it. Yeah, definitely. When he first came down, he wanted everything done there and then. And, you know, it was a case of, well, actually, you know, we need to wait to get materials in before you can build the path or build that wall or and you have to wait. And that really feeds in again, like you said, with, with that sort of addiction personality where it's that instant gratification. Yeah. If they want something and they don't have it, they'll go nick it. Yeah. Or they'll do whatever they need to do it. Whereas, like you say, it's patience. And that really does feed into... The recovery model as well you know it's not instant now you've got to think about the future and things fail in gardens yeah. which is a really good lesson for them to learn you know same, same as recovery there's no fixed point there's no end point you don't just recover it's an ongoing process you're kind of in that in that um, fight all, always aren't you but if you're a gardener you're all kind of in a you're in an interaction with nature if you're recovering a drug addict then obviously that's something that doesn't leave you yeah. it's how you cope with it isn't it how you deal with it that, that's that's important and I think with gardening you're dealing with things on multi-level and like you say if you're into drugs it's all about the hit you, you become so single-minded about everything you become so tunneled about everything so it's kind of getting them to to broaden that mindscape out isn't it and think of things a bit more laterally yeah definitely that, that sort of that mentality is very insular and i think like you said with gardening you're thinking it on so many levels so there's, there's lads that come down onto the gardens and they are only thinking about themselves and then you know a few months down the line they're they're, they're planting or sowing seeds that they're never necessarily going to see the benefit of and you know they won't mature for another few or four years and they're doing it for other people and that's the difference from when they start in the garden to when they leave is that they're they're not just thinking about themselves so they're learning to be selfless for the first time in a long time probably some yeah, of them aren't they definitely they're thinking about the garden yeah not individuals and that's the beauty of it genius really isn't it it, it works yeah, <laughs> yeah. And do you have individuals that do their do their time there, work with you, and then go on? Do you think outside of the prison to, to onto a career or go to work in gardening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we can't track it. We're not allowed to. Um, but certainly, from what happens within the prison, there are lads that have come down with no interest, not really sure what they're doing there, and they get that bug, and they'll go on and do an MVQ in gardening somewhere else in the prison because we do run a formal horticultural qualification through the education department so you know that's them done you know and you see them six eight months later and they're working on the other gardens in the prison and yeah they've got it for life then so they've recovered themselves but also that makes everybody else safe isn't it when they get out so you're kind of doing two big jobs at the same time aren't you in many ways Uh, yeah absolutely you'd like to think so yeah and what about what does the role does organic growing play in it all um, I think from a, a, a drug rehabilitation point of view, I think organic gardening is absolutely pivotal because when we talk about addictions to the lads and we're talking about putting chemicals into their bodies and, and sort of how that sort of mashes up their internal system, they don't necessarily quite click that organic gardening is kind of the same. And then, you know, we'll be having a conversation with them about organic growing and the use, of, the non-use of pesticides and chemicals and things. And then they kind of, every once in a while, it's sort of the penny drops and they go, that's what I've been doing to me, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of really, really just mind-blowing when they finally get... When that penny drops. and So they are then connecting to nature, aren't they? That's what they're doing. They're sort of recognising nature's role in everything, aren't they? And that, I would imagine that's a big leap forward. Yeah, profound for Mm. a lot of the lads. You know, they they take it on board and and that can be a real sort of game-changer for them in terms of their, their drug use. And like I said at the beginning, I don't think many people could imagine or do the job you do so I'm kind of curious, when you go to work, and I'm sure every day is quite eventful for you, I'm sure they're not the same. How do you feel when you get home? You go, you go I mean, obviously you've got family, haven't you? you've got kids, you get yeah. in, you shut the door, and you sit down on the sofa, how does it kind of make you feel? Um, like you said, th- th- there can be rough days when you come <laughs> home and you just want to get home and, and spend a bit of time in your own garden and stuff. But, you know, I think working in a job like that, you, you kind of have to get it and you have to really be passionate about it. And I think sort of coming home most days... I just have this sort of overwhelming feeling of just kind of being really proud, you know, and I, I come home and I usually end up sort of doing a few hours research for an idea that one of the lads has had. So, you know, because we don't have time usually through the day because mm. we're so busy. So I, I kind of spend my evenings just sort of doing research for the next day and just trying to get everything running as smoothly as possible. So you really can't, you can't go in half cocked with this job, can you? You've got to kind of live it a little bit, haven't you? I can see it really means something to you. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It's, 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 it's not just a job, it, it's, it's part of my life really, mm. to be quite honest. Well, I'm in utter admiration from you. I really do. I think you do an incredible job and I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me to talk about it. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. by Hannah who not only works with us but has also taken on a new garden. Hannah I'm guessing some of these questions might be your own? Um, I may have an ulterior motive every now and again yes. Okay so far away. <laughs> so the first question is about comfrey. Um, I've heard that comfrey is a good plant to have in the garden. Why is that and how do I use it? Comfrey is a must in any garden. It's the ultimate natural fertiliser. If you cut its leaves, and you can, you can cut and come again all through the summer, you're going to get the perfect mix of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium when those leaves rot down. You can put them on the compost heap, you can put them as a mulch around the plant, or you can even make a really rather smelly comfrey tea, which is a liquid feed. Have you ever made that, Chris? I have indeed, and you're right, it is a bit strong, it is a bit strong, and if, uh, if that's not your uh, game, if you don't want a smelly uh, compost bean, you can also buy it as a product. Um, it's worth saying, actually, uh, Lawrence Hills came up with this, the original com- comfrey, but back in 14. He, to me, epitomised gardening in a way, because he tried and tried and tried until he got it exactly right, and I really like that sort of narrative, that tale. I use it personally as a liquid feed, um, I don't have the room to use it on a compost or, or, or as a tea in a barrel, so I buy it as a liquid feed. But I tell you what, I use it mostly. I use it as a pellet form. Probably about June, I'll top dress my containers with it, and it really, really kicks on those plants. Because it's so high in potassium, it's really going to help with those intensive knee tomatoes, tomatoes, cucumbers, yeah. all those things. That bedding we plants, want. even bedding plants. It, like, so I'd start off with a tonic, probably early season liquid feed, and then I'd hit the pellets for the summer. And I can't think of a better fertiliser than comfrey, I really can't. And if you can, if you have got the space to grow your own, then your quid's in, because it's completely free, you can cut and come again. I'd say, actually, rather than just one, I'd say two plants in your garden. And it's a very beautiful plant, also, the bees like it, it brings in the yeah, wildlife yeah. a bit. It's, it's a win-win all round, Sarah, is what yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. And I've heard, um, you mentioned that the tea is quite smelly, I've heard that if you produce a concentrate, then that's 
slightly less smelly. So Yes, it's a slightly more fiddly to produce because you've got to get the right setup to pack the leaves down tightly and then they will rot of their own accord in within a container and then that rotting process will create a nasty drip of a black liquid and you've got to somehow work out how you're going to capture that black liquid. To me the easiest method is the tea. I know it stinks but all you do is you cut the leaves, pack them down into a, a bucket and fill the bucket with these leaves, pack down as much as you can, squash them down with your spade or your fork and then top up with water. Cover it and leave it for maybe a month and then you're good to go. And maybe it's, maybe share it if you if you like me and you live in a terrace house. Maybe share it, yeah. some with your neighbour. Well, if you, you know you could put a barrel, an old water bottle, on an, an allotment site, or in a bigger garden, and you could do it in there. Then it, the smells away from you a little bit. So there are ways around it. And um, mm. but it's certainly the ultimate fertiliser as far as I'm concerned. Brilliant. Okay, so we're moving on to slugs and snails. Favourite topic. Yeah. We don't um, talk about this much, do we? Not, slugs not and at snails. all. Um, so <laughs> how can I prevent slug and snail damage? Air rifle. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the first one probably me and Sarah would agree on, one we always come up with first, is just don't plant out when your plants are too tender, when they're too young. Slugs and snails like nothing better than that juicy young foliage. When it gets a bit older and the lignin gets into the leaves and the stems, it's not quite so keen. So the same rule as thinking about frost prevention also apply to slug, slug and snail. Plant them out later in May when they're a bit bigger, six, eight leaf stage, it means you're not going to get frosted, less chance of slug and snail attack. Okay, so that's preventing the slugs and snails. The other thing you can do, of course, is put down barriers or traps. Um, barriers are usually made up of dry material and that they don't like squirming over the dry material. Of course, if you do that and grit, oats or whatever, if it rains or if the ground gets damp, it's not going to work anymore. So you've got to be vigilant and you've got to keep doing it. It's no good just putting it down once and thinking that'll do you. Traps, we can put beer in, in saucers. That's a very popular one. I think the snails like it as well. Be careful though that you're not going to kill the beetles which will eat the slugs and snails. So maybe make a little lip to that trap so the slug goes over and falls into it. Of course, the, uh, one of my big methods, and it takes a bit of time, is out there with the tongs and a plastic bag, to be honest with you. And I, uh, you know, my record in my back garden in fencing once, it's only a small patio, was 288 on a rainy evening, so wow. they can really go for it. Well, you can actually create places for them to gather, can't yeah. you? Just... Well, I think I had a lot of old pots stacked in the corner, and I think hygiene's quite an important thing here. They kind of like, on the allotment, they we had a path and it was tarpaulin and, and old bricks on top. They love all that kind of stuff. So if you're having a look at areas where they go concave, but do pick them up, I'm not saying kill them, get your garden tongs on a wet evening, put them in a plastic bag and then I walk them off site. I get rid of them, I let them go somewhere else. What, somebody else's problem? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't launch them over the fence there. I, I take them to the woodland walk near me and I release them into the wild. But of course, think of the number of birds that will, that will make a very tasty lunch for. It's, everything has a purpose, you know, they're not, yeah. it's not just about us, they're not just a pain to us, there's a reason for them being around. You obviously get more of them in gardens because we plant rows of salad leaf and rows of lettuce, so we're we're giving them a banquet, so it's highly surprising they turn up. Then, but also think of other animals like hedgehogs and frogs. Now, if you can encourage a hedgehog into your garden, then your quid's in because they'll eat all the slugs. Natural, and also there's a really big idea I like is a what you call a green corridoring for hedgehogs, sort of wildlife corridoring. If you look at a garden fence, at the bottom of the fence there'll be a plank of wood, and this is called a kickboard. And just cut a hole in that kickboard, 
maybe like six inches by six inches, and that allows the hedgehogs to move from garden to garden. And they've been doing this in Southwark and South London and that area, and it's encouraging the hedgehog population up, and that is your best cure for slugs and snails. Uh, that's a good thing to know about, Chris, definitely. And, of course, finally, why not choose a resistant variety? And by that, I mean, we all know that slugs and snails love hostas. Forgo the hostas. Grow, grow an astrantia or something else instead. You know, you've got beautiful leaves, and maybe the snails don't like it so much. Yeah, you've, all, you've got such an array choice of plants, it doesn't have to be the one thing all the time. Okay, brilliant. So then the next question, we had an email in of someone who read somewhere that you should leave lawn mowings on the lawn. Is that correct? Chris, you're a lawns man. Yes, I am. I would say yes and no, just to confuse <laughs> things. I am, obviously, I am a love, I love a lawn, I must admit. Not just a grass lawn, I like the wildflowers in it and stuff as well. You have to be a little bit careful with a thing called thatch if you're going to leave the clippings there. The finer the clippings, the better. They will release nitrogen back into your garden. If the clippings are quite coarse and you let them build up over time, you get this layer of thatch underneath the grass. This can impede drainage, and then you might start getting problems with moss and stuff. So I would say, if you can get a mower that chops your grass up very fine, that helps. But only not, if not now and again, just leave it to lie. The rest of the time, onto the compost bin. I guess it also depends on which mower you have. Some don't have bags mm. to collect it. Then, then you presumably you've got a lot left on the grass, and that just acts as a, a heavy blanket. Yeah, it does, and it's kind of where you're mowing as well. Like if, if I was cutting a mowing a bowling green, which I used to do, obviously I'm going to box that off. That's the term. You box it off, you remove the clippings. But you know, if you're around trees and stuff, then you're not doing any harm by leaving that thatch there, really. Mm. So it kind of depends on the level of lawn you're after. To be fair. I've got such an old lawnmower that the box has actually got a hole in it and I can't mend it. So all the time I'm going up and down, little sprays of very fine grass is going well, up. Well, it's not a bad thing because you're putting that nitrogen back, aren't you? All that lovely nitrogen back into the soil. Exactly. So you'll get nice, healthy growth. And uh, So I kind of think maybe if you're, you've are you got a lawn and you want that lawn to be really nice, now and again let it lay, but the rest of the time maybe take it off and compost it. Okay, brilliant. Um, and then the last question is about seedlings. So when do I know if my seedlings are ready to be transplanted? I'm a big man for what I call pricking out. And that means I like to grow my seeds so quite dense in a, in a pot or a tray to start with. And once they come up to the cotyledon stage, which is the first two leaves, this is kind of like the packed lunch of the seedling, if you like. They, they bring their own food to the party to start with. And that enables them to start photosynthesizing. But as soon as they're at that stage, you'll find they'll get a little bit leggy as they start to grow. I like to very carefully remove them from the seed pot and then plant them out more spaced out, called pricking out. And you can plant them right up to their neck because the stem will shoot their roots. And this, I think, just leads to a more sturdy, stronger plant. Sorry, Chris, can I just be clear here? Are you planting them out into another seed tray? I will plant them out into another seed tray, particularly tender plants like bedding, tomatoes, cucumber, that kind of thing. Um, I would then plant them on, yeah, and then I would grow them on before putting them out, start to harden them off and put them out. So what you're looking to create is a tough little plant that's quite a nice little size, quite dense, Maybe good at resisting the slugs and the snails before it goes out into, into the environment. And be careful of leaving seedlings too long because they will intulate, they'll get long and thin, they'll bend to the light, and you don't want that happening. You need to separate them out and give them space before that. It does help once you've transplanted them is to turn them, stroke them, make sure they stay squat and small. I, I agree with you there. And I think another thing to think about is, especially if you've got a problem with slugs and snails, which we've just been talking about, think about staging your planting out. So keep some of your seedlings back, pop them up again, maybe into a flower pot rather than a seed tray. So you've got something that's going to mature in your cold frame or your cold greenhouse. And then if your early ones go out and all get eaten, you've got some held in reserve that can go out later. Bit of a subspench. Yeah, it is. Or, or give them away to your neighbours and your allotments because, you know, if you want, you want to keep a plant, give it away is a famous expression from a gardener because 
you can always you get those back and you can swap and you can do that's that. Very you, true. you know, and I, you can never grow enough plants. I don't think there's always somewhere to put them. Yeah. But don't put those little seedlings out too soon. They need to be sturdy. Great. Thank you very much. So that's all for this month. Don't forget, if you need further information on anything we've discussed, including slug control and how to get sowing, go to the Garden Organic website on www.gardenorganic.org.uk. Chris and I hope you have a great time this April, whatever the weather and wherever you grow. Next month, we spend time with an online retailer asking just how organic a large commercial organisation can be. You'll hear the secrets of tomato tasting and the tale of a flight attendant who turned his passion for growing into the best job in the gardening world. Bye for now.